On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no! She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner, doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks, run happy. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my buddy, Ryan Lambert. Ryan, what's going on, man? I'm tired. Yes, yes, we're very <laughs> That's tired. About it. We're recording this a couple hours after the trade deadline has passed. I don't know, or, or I don't even know if all the trades are still in the queue or if they've been processed fully. I, I kind of at some point just had to check out because I just couldn't wait for any more details to come through. I feel like we already know sort of the, the main uh players that were involved. And so we're just going to go off of that and, and see how it goes. Um, and also joining us today for the PDO cast is our colleague at EP ringside, Jack Fraser. Jack, what's going on, man? My eyes hurt. I've been looking at a screen for like 10 hours. We're so washed up. Like this intro is just like coming right out of the game. I'm going to climb under my desk. About physical Take and mental, man. mental pain from today. Um, it's been a long day. It's been a long weekend uh, and a long couple of days following all of the, Traded on activity in the NHL, but it is done. And we're going to do our best here today to sort through um, all the functionally important things, what people need to know, what kind of matters and what doesn't, uh, winners and losers, all that sort of stuff. Uh, And we're going to see how it goes. And hopefully our brains aren't too scrambled from trying to keep up with everything. So, Jack, I'll let you I'll let you go first this time. I feel like I usually let Ryan go first. So I'm going to I'm going to change it up this time. Um, You give me. Any big story you want to start off with, whether it is a uh, a winner, a loser, uh, a notable takeaway from from today, um, you can take it any direction you want. Well, I think one theme that we saw from a couple of teams was teams shoring up their strengths uh, and not necessarily fully addressing their weaknesses. Uh, we saw Florida targeting as their big acquisition, Claude Giroux. Uh, improving the offense of the team that is already the best offensive unit in the NHL and Boston going all out to acquire Hampus Lindholm to improve the defense of what is already the best defensive unit in the NHL Uh, in Boston's case, leaving their uh, center depth looking like the Providence Bruins. Uh, So I, I thought it was surprising to me that, you know, especially in Boston's case that, you know, and, and I think you kind of saw with Colorado too, where they go after players like Lekkanen and, and Nico Sturm and Andrew Cogliano, where teams kind of played into their strengths without necessarily directly addressing areas of weakness. Yeah, there were a couple teams. Um, I would say the the Minnesota Wild probably. Um, I guess the New York Rangers that kind of went against that a little bit and tried to address some of the weaknesses they have. And we can kind of save those teams for, for a second here. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you guys want to start off by just kind of breaking down the Atlantic division right off the top here? It feels like that's kind of in terms of like a league wide significance basis. It feels like 
the fact that the top four teams of the Atlantic, which we'd all consider to be like four of the best six, seven, eight teams, whatever, nine teams you want to um, lump them in as a league wide, all made pretty significant uh, acquisitions. Yeah. I think your mileage can vary on how much they actually improved based on the players they brought in, but they certainly were pretty aggressive about trying to kind of go all in for this season. And it feels like that's kind of like the, the big storyline from, from this deadline. Um, Ryan, let's start with the Bruins. What are, what, uh, what are your feelings on the Hampus Lindholm, Lindholm acquisition factoring in both the acquisition costs for him and the extension that they would like immediately sign him to? Yeah, it's interesting. Cause my, my initial reaction to it was, Ooh, that's a, uh, that's a lot to give up, but also they'll probably re-sign him. And then they did. And, Maybe the number's a little bit higher than I would have liked, and certainly there's more years than I would have liked if I if I were the Bruins. But it felt like it was all about right. I, I think that's a player who um, was, let's say, not put in a, a position to succeed in Anaheim the last few years. Um, and, you know, at his age, I, I'm not exactly expecting him to round into – the form where, you know, people like you and I, Dimitri, uh, would have been like ringing a cowbell. Like, can you believe how good this guy is? Oh, my God, he should be winning Norris's and all that kind of stuff. Like, he's not going to, I don't think, get back to that level. But he's an extremely competent defender. And the thing you said earlier about, um, you know, addressing a, a, a need that wasn't actually a need that much, I would have said coming into the season that the Bruins did have a need on defense. Um, obviously, the results kind of indicate that maybe they didn't necessarily, uh, but never hurts to have an extra guy who you know can play on either of your top two pairs uh, pretty comfortably. So I, I like the player. They did give up a lot for him, but not... Hmm. I, I guess what I would say is it doesn't matter. Because the oh, second Patrice Bergeron retires, uh, they're going to be in pretty stark disarray. So you might as well push every chip in that you possibly can uh, while you can. Well, yeah, I, I guess my you know my issue with that strategy is that like you're definitely right. Like in the way things stand right now and what their you know their prospects look like at the center position, they definitely are going to be in stark disarray as soon as Bergeron retires or regresses. But I mean, you look at the young core of the team of McAvoy, Pasternak, and, and now I guess Jeremy Swayman in net, you know, if managed properly, I don't think this team needs to completely fall apart once Bergeron is gone, if they can address the center of the ice and, and actually, you know, maybe build out a young core around those guys. Um, the issue that I had, I guess, with, with Lindholm is not necessarily that I think he's a scrub or anything, because I, I, I don't think that, and, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if he bounces back. I guess it's more for me that, you know, they, they move these futures and, and some of these futures are quite far in the future, you know, like these aren't only kind of their immediate futures, yeah. but they're ones that they would have been able to trade down the line. And, you know, I understand that they couldn't get Eichel. I understand that they couldn't get hurdle. I don't, you know, it's, I don't think either of those are, are their fault, but I, I do think maybe this and, and Lindholm's cap it maybe potentially as well could limit their ability to build out, a core that allows this team to keep keep competing once Marshan and Bergeron are no longer a big factor. 
I mean, the thing with the cap hit is, so it's 6.5 million moving forward, right? Which I don't think is necessarily that egregious. It puts him at like around the 30th highest paid defenseman with guys like his former teammate Cam Fowler and Colton Pareko. Actually, like every defenseman on the Blues, it seems like with Pareko, Falk, and Krug all being basically tied at 6.5 million. Um, so it's not necessarily that prohibitive if he's going to bounce back and if you're going to rely on him to this capacity. The eight years is obviously very alarming for a player who is, I guess, 28 years old now, is going to take yeah. him into his mid-30s. Um, and, and that's a concern for me. I think that's where the Ducks really handled this very well, where it seemed like they were pretty interested in retaining him. And after he said, okay, I want more than five years, they were like, all right, we, we cannot justify that. And so they quickly moved to trading him and got these assets back in return. The interesting thing for me here is it, it seems like the Bruins are in a bit of a like a logistical pickle with how they proceed moving forward with Lindholm in the sense that if their plan is to use him with McAvoy on a top pair, I'm sure he's going to look good. But one of the benefits of having a player of McAvoy's caliber is that pretty much anyone that you pull with him is going to look good, right? right? Like we've seen Grizzlick succeed with him, and I think Grizzlick's a good player. We've seen Mike Riley succeed with him. People seem to hate Mike Riley. I think he's perfectly fine. Probably obviously not a top pair defenseman, but that's kind of one of the benefits. If you have Charlie McAvoy and you're going to pay him a premium, he's going to make whoever he plays with better. So you don't need to pay his partner as the 30th highest paid defenseman. But then if they don't play him with McAvoy and they said try to kind of float a second pair with Lindholm and whoever else, I'm not sure at this point of his career if he is good enough to kind of draw positive results out of whoever he plays with. Like we just saw in Anaheim that, you know, we're saying, all right, we're not sure if it's fair to evaluate his numbers because of his situation. Well, if he's put in an adverse situation in Boston, it's going to kind of be the same story again. And then at that point, what did you really accomplish? So I think they're in a bit of a tricky spot. I think certainly in a playoff series, like let's say they're protecting a lead or they're really worried about one specific matchup and they do want to kind of shore up their in-zone defending. You can put Lynn home with McAvoy for like short spurts and really maximize those shifts. But as a long-term strategy, I'm not sure it totally makes sense as an argument to say, we're going to go out and pay a first and two seconds and then sign this guy to an eight-year extension to play with Charlie McAvoy for the next eight years. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. No, that so, makes... I don't know. It, it kind of... It, it's a weird spot. They basically paid, paid a premium for something they don't need. One... I, one thing I, I think... Was, oh, well, go ahead. Sorry. Like, one final thing that I was thinking about in terms of this, because it feels like, you know, one of our complaints with McAvoy has been... Or I guess one of the concerns of why he's not constantly considered to be like a Norris finals or in that echelon is all right. His five on five impacts are amazing. He's obviously a phenomenal player. He doesn't put up the points. Now, a lot of that has been, there's been other defensemen who have played ahead of him on the power play. Right. Um, I think he certainly got like all of the physical tools to, he's not going to be Kale McCarr, but I think he's got more sort of offensive ability or creativity that he hasn't fully channeled yet. And I wonder how much of that is, he's played with partners who maybe he felt like he had to kind of play a more sort of traditional mm. uh, defensive role and kind of be a bit more responsible and reserved. And if you're going to make the argument that, all right, you put a guy like Lindholm with him and that's really just going to unleash McAvoy to kind of freelance a bit more and get involved in the offensive zone and kind of play that role of another offensive creator that's going to help address this team's needs, which is turning shots to goals. Then all of a sudden, I'd be willing to listen to that argument. I'm not sure if it necessarily works that way, but at least that is kind of an interesting thought exercise. Yeah, I, I guess one thing that also kind of concerns me a little bit with Lindholm, and, and the thing is we haven't seen him 
in Boston yet. So, you know, we really can't have a, an accurate view of, of how he's going to play or how he's going to adjust this game. Uh, and, and that's a risk of the decision that the Bruins made to give him the full eight year extension without knowing if he even has chemistry with McAvoy or if he even is going to be able to turn the clock back to, to what he was a couple of years ago. Um, is that, you know, when you hear scouts talk about him, like when you hear, you know, the hockey men talk about him, they always describe him as, you know, always he's pretty good at everything, but he's not like excellent at any one thing, which, you know, when you combine that, I think with the way that his general, you know, the impact metrics and everything like that have gone downhill in the past couple of years, you know, it would make me feel a lot better about him if there was kind of one specific excellent skill that you could really point to with him uh, as opposed to, yeah, he's kind of good at everything. And also he's maybe declined a little bit, since his prime well that would probably uh, be his rush defense right which is still pretty good yeah it's been it's been up and down i was i was looking at it you know it's been strong this year and actually a couple of players on the ducks have had been strong into this year which makes me think that there maybe was some kind of coaching adjustment who knows and in the ruins obviously uh play a pretty aggressive rush defense game so again it'll be really interesting to see how he adapts to, to boston I guess with any of these situations, you do get a little nervous when you when you have a full eight year contract coming and you have no idea what the player actually looks like on the team. You know what's yeah. interesting? What I like when I've watched him play um, the past couple of years, he hasn't really looked physically the same to me in terms of his movement. Like he moves fine, but in twenty sixteen to twenty eighteen, which was kind of like his prime years, like he could keep up step for step with Connor McDavid when he tried to carry the puck in against him. No problem. He can just like stick to him. And he, I haven't really seen that level of just like freakish level of, of movement from him. And it's not like he's necessarily like this, like at a geriatric age, right? He's only 28 years old, but he has played a lot of minutes. He's had a lot of injuries. He's had a bunch of surgeries. And I'm kind of curious about it. And the reason why I bring that up is because I don't know if either of you caught this, but Frank Cervelli, Frank Cervelli was doing like a radio hit or something. And he had this kind of like bit of like a throwaway report, but I, I caught people on Ducks Twitter talking about it where he was suggesting that teams he talked to were using some of the puck tracking or player tracking data they have to sort of identify that, that Lynn Holmes movement was actually still really good. Like that he was like a prolific skater and one of the better skaters in the league. And I, I thought that was interesting. I don't necessarily even know how you would like functionally qualify that or, or, yeah. or the validity of that. Like, it seems like it doesn't really pass the smell test to me, but I thought that was interesting because it doesn't really line up necessarily with what I've been seeing with, with my untrained eyes, admittedly. So who knows, maybe the Bruins do feel like they can get more out of them in that regard. Yeah. Th- that reminds me of um, several years ago, back when Deadspin was good Deadspin. Uh, they ran a story about um, the, the player and ball tracking technology in the NBA. Um, they had it simmed out so that they just were like, Oh, here's the most efficient possible defense against this kind of play and this kind of play and this kind of play. And LeBron was beating the computer generated um, like most efficient uh, defensive coverages and stuff like that. Like LeBron was just better than a computer ever could be basically. And that, and that's kind of, like, I just remember reading that and going, well, how do they know? You know what I mean? Like, how do they know that's the most efficient? Like, yeah, obviously LeBron's a freak, but that just that's what that reminds me of. But the other thing I wanted to say is I think the guy that it, it makes the most sense to to pair with uh, Lindholm, not that we should talk about Hampus Lindholm this much, I guess, but is Brandon Carlo, like elite defensively, uh, you know, does almost nothing uh, offensively. 
I don't know. Carlo and Mike Riley are perfectly fine together. I That's thought. true. Yeah. No, no problems there, but people yeah. really seem to, I know Jack, I know you were talking about this on Twitter recently, but people really seem to, I think it like these guys just kind of fall into a bit of a blind spot for people who just like maybe see them mess up once where they miss an assignment in front of the net, or maybe like they kind of get out muscled by a bigger forward in front of the crease and it leads to a goal against. And then that's their lasting memory of them. And they're like, Oh, Mike Riley sucks. And then meanwhile, like I tracked every single one of those playoff games last year. And he was like one of the most efficient defensemen in the entire playoffs, just because like he does very simple stuff. I actually tracked all the data and he was like the most efficient guy in terms of exiting the zone with possession through passing and then I went back and specifically watched the shifts again because I was like, is that true? And then, I, and then <laughs> I, I, I couldn't even put together like a highlight reel of impressive passes because they were all like very short, like eight foot passes to a forward who was kind of in an optimal position, to then skated out himself. And it was like nothing that would blow you away, but it was always the right play. And so that's a pretty good defenseman and a good guy to have. But for whatever reason, I guess like, people just stylistically hate the way he plays because when he messes up, it looks really bad. Yeah. Well, and you see it over and over and over again. And you see it fan base after fan base where there's a player who plays a relatively low key game, you know, doesn't pile up the points, you know, it's almost always a matter of points because, you know, fans will find a reason to hate Chris Letang and John Carlson, Eric Carlson, et cetera, et cetera, you know, but because they put up the points, at least that's something. But I mean, I remember talking about Devon Taves back in 2020 and Islanders fans telling me he was trash uh, and that, you know, they were lucky to get, you know, second round pick or two second round picks for him. Uh, and, and then, of course, you know, he starts looking like a superstar. And, and, you know, Ethan Bear last year with Edmonton is another example. You just go down the list of all these smallish defenders who don't hit and don't pile up points and, you know, they get undervalued. And, and I think Mike Riley is a good example. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about the Pandas next on the list of, uh, yes. of Atlantic teams. So I don't necessarily want to spend that much time on Drew because if people go back and listen to the show, Jack and I did with, with our pal Thomas Drans, um last week, kind of previewing the trade deadline. We did like a full 15 to 20 minute thing about Mike. I really like the idea of Drew to the Panthers. And so we kind of outlined how he'd help them. And even though they're such an elite offensive team, the ways he could kind of improve their performance regardless. So people can just go back and listen to that. I guess my question for the Panthers here is I've seen them kind of characterized as quote unquote being all in because they moved a bunch of futures here, right? Like they moved whatever a prospect in a second to get Sam Bennett last year. Then they moved Devin Levi in a first to get Sam Reinhardt in the off season. And they traded a first and another pick and a prospect for Ben Sherratt. And then they traded uh, a future first as well. And, and Owen Tippett um, and another pick for, for Claude Giroux. And so they certainly have mortgaged a ton of future capital, but at the same time, the more I think about it, I feel like this, this organization is generally set up pretty well here to be competitive for at least the next couple seasons. Right. Like if you look at their yes, entire skater group, it's every like literally everyone is right now between the age of 25 and 28 and under contract for at least the next couple seasons. Huberto is kind of on the edge of that. I believe he's going to be turning 29 here soon and he's uh, got one year left and then they're going to have to extend them similar with, with Uyghur, but they're going to have like Keith Yandel buyout money coming off the books by then. And so they're going to be able to retain those guys assuming they want to. And so like, it's pretty much going to be this team, which is all theoretically in its prime right now. So 
they're all in in the sense that they don't have a ton of draft capital anymore. So it, they don't have that kind of next wave coming down the road. But at the same time, it's a good team that's going to be able to retain this good team for the next couple of years. So I don't necessarily view it as kind of an all-in season for them. Yeah, it, it is only because, like, you know, you want to go to the draft and see your team get a guy 27th overall and talk yourself into, you know, this guy, if, if a couple things break right, this guy could be a borderline all-star, you know? And, the yeah, to your point, like, the Panthers don't need to do that. And, and a thing that we increasingly see is like guys like uh, like Drew Hellison in Colorado, right? Going, well, I'm not going to sign with you guys. I don't have a chance to make the NHL. And it's the same thing with the Panthers. It's like, okay, they draft all these guys. Who are they bumping out of the lineup exactly? You know, like... Yeah. Unless you're Anton Lundell and you're so good right away that you're just like the third line center. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you don't get those guys where the Panthers are going to be picking the next right. few years. That's so, a key. Yeah. yeah. So, well, like, I, yeah, you can get Nolachari's spot, I guess, but they might just give that to some veteran they get for nothing on uh, July 1st. Yeah. I mean, this might be the, uh, you know, that classic, like, has only seen the movie Boss Baby, so he thinks every movie is Boss Baby. Um, but I got some Penguins vibes from what the Panthers did this year and also I think their outlook because – you know, I, what the Panthers have done so far in adding Giroux and Sherratt, as well as those extra little death moves, reminds me a lot of what the Penguins did back in 2013 when they got Jerome McGinley, Brendan Morrow, and Douglas Murray. You know, they paid a lot of future assets. You know, it, I, I, I was shocked and felt elderly to find out that Claude Giroux was only one year younger than Jerome McGinley was when the Penguins traded for him back in 2013. Uh you know, they made a run to the conference finals. It didn't work out. You know, that was their all-in year. I remember all the talk being that. And then, you know, three years later, they go back-to-back and win the Stanley Cup because the fundamental pieces were right. there for them to build off of. Uh, the other thing, and I guess one thing where I think maybe the Panthers let me down a little bit or I was a little disappointed with them, and I think the Avalanche did this, um, is, you know, if there's one thing the Panthers have proven in the past two years, it's that they are – the new generation Mark Donk team. Like they can just take any prospect that has any modicum or not even prospect, just project player that has any modicum of, you know, fundamental talent, even if their underlying numbers in another situation weren't necessarily that good. And as long as there's some kind of talent that you can point to or, or physical skill, they can turn that player into an impact player. And they, they did that big time at last year's deadline. They did it in the summer I obviously did it in the summer that they got for Haggy and, and Duclair. I, I would have liked to see them maybe take off the avalanche a little bit. You know, avalanche went and got Nico Sturm. They obviously got Lekkonen, uh, you know, even Cogliano. I kind of would have liked to see the Panthers take a stab at maybe one or two more, you know, players like that instead of just kind of going, you know, they got the big guys and then they got Robert Hag, who I, I don't think is a very high upside player. So that's the only thing that, that really let me down. But I mean, I, I agree. I, I think this is an all-in year, quote unquote, but they're, they have a couple more all-in years left in them. Okay, well, so here's my follow-up question on that. Is the idea of if they had not traded for Sherrod and Giroux, right? And if they had just consolidated everything they used to get those two guys, which was Tippett's Milanic, uh, a 2023 first, a 2024 first, a 2022 fourth, and a 2023 third. And then they used like a sixth rounder or whatever to get Robert Haig. 
how far off is that from whatever it's going to take to get Jacob Chikrin from the Coyotes? Because I feel like, you know, they're saying that, well, we're not in, yeah. a, in a rush to trade for a trade. right now we're looking for three premium assets. All right. Well, I'm pretty sure the Coyotes would view two future firsts as pretty premium assets at this point. I, I, I think you'd probably still need to add to that, but I don't, I don't think it's necessarily that far off. And beyond the fact that Chikrin is from Florida and would certainly fill a defensive need for them, um, he would fit very perfectly with what I just said in the fact that he is a 24 year old that's under contract at a very reasonable price. And it would have been like the perfect type of sort of player profile for the next three or four years with this yeah. current group. And I think that's maybe a disappointing part. I'm not sure if they ever consider that or ever they thought that was possible. Maybe they thought chicken wasn't realistically available. And so they went a different route. Maybe they were just so infatuated with Sherrod and Giroux that they decided to do that instead. Um, yeah. But that's kind of disappointing because I'd be curious about that potential for them. Yeah, I, I do. I definitely recall like, you know, January or so uh, Chikrin Panthers rumors. Um, well, and his, dad, I also, his dad is like on their broadcast. Is he really? Yeah. Well, um, and, and that's that's the thing where I wonder how much it was like, yeah, look, if you like knock our socks off, like really just drop a, a treasure chest on, on the desk in front of me here. Yeah. You can have Jacob Chikrin, but we're not like super inclined to just do it for two 28th overall picks and Ty Smolanic, you know, like, I, I don't know how much more they would have had to add. Obviously they, they've used a bit of draft capital even before this season. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Well, and I, I feel like the elephant in the room is the Sherrod trade because, like, I think it's kind of hard to get too upset at them for trading, a, like, right. a, you know, a fifteen-year-old for uh, for Claude Giroux. Uh, you know, he he fell in their laps. You know, that he's he wanted to go there. There wasn't really a bidding war, and so they got him for super cheap without having to give up that much. I guess the the question for me is just, you know, what could they have done instead of paying a an absolute premium for for Ben Sherrod, who. You know, that's not to say that I think Sherratt will be completely useless for them or that he's, you know, the worst player in the league or, or, you know, how his metrics look after a season where he was basically Montreal's number one defenseman. But I don't think there's any doubt that they paid an absolute premium to get him. And the question for me, I guess, would be, you know, how much do you have to pay or do you have to add to what they gave up for Sherratt to get better player who's a better fit including you know Lindholm would be an example but uh Jacob Chickering if you're willing to explore the you know the Spencer Knight conversation or or things like that well they unequivocally overpaid I'm paralyzed with fear to hate on Ben Sherrod here because every player they brought in as you mentioned has looked amazing since coming to the Panthers and I'm willing to leave the the door open to the possibility that he's going to look like his best self playing on this team as well. So, um, but, but they paid a premium to do so. And, and that's entirely your point that based on the sort of environment they've established, they don't need to be in the business of doing that because they can just plug guys in and get, get more out of them. So, I mean, how, how far away is, you know, the Panthers version of Robert Hag potentially going to be to what Ben Sherratt is currently like based on their track record. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I guess we have the Leafs here still. Maybe we should take a break here real quick. Um, and then we're going to pick up with, we'll do the Leafs and then we'll bounce around and do a bunch of other teams. I like how, I guess we're like 30 minutes in here and we've done 
We've done Hampus Lindholm and the Panthers. (laughs) Um, Okay, let's take a break and then we'll pick it back up. Champions aren't born, they're made. And the secret to make your business reign supreme, Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Forget the off-season work. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling warm-ups or wall hangers, it's time to start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that create die-hard fans. Shopify fields all the sales channels to grow a winning business from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify is a secret to becoming a business champion by making it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, taking the guesswork out of selling. When you're ready to take your winning idea to the world, team up with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash bluewire, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash bluewire to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash bluewire. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. While we take a break here during the PDO cast, let me tell you a little bit about HelloFresh, which is sponsoring today's episode. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. The recipes are easy enough for even someone as useless as myself in the kitchen to follow thanks to their well-laid-out steps and pictures that help guide you along the way. They offer 50 unique menu and market items to choose from each week, which provides you with plenty of variety and options for whatever your dietary preferences may be. Most importantly, HelloFresh is a massive time saver for your busy day-to-day life. Not only does it cut out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips, but it also allows you to cut back on the amount of time you're actually needing to spend in the kitchen with meals that are ready in 30 minutes or less. Plus, they've also got quick and easy meals, which include 20-minute recipes that have low prep and easy cleanup options, which provide an even faster route to putting food on your table. That's why they make cooking easy, fun, and affordable, and that's why it's America's number one meal kit. If you're like me, that's a massive perk. Most nights, I'm busy glued to my laptop trying to keep up with six different games that are all happening at the same time because the NHL insists on having puck drops that are all happening at once, and I don't know why they keep doing it, but it keeps me really busy, and it doesn't give me a lot of free time to be messing around in the kitchen or trying to figure out what I'm going to have for dinner that night. So being able to cook up a quick and easy meal that's both filling and delicious is such a luxury for me to be able to enjoy and just makes my life that much easier. 
If that sounds interesting to you and you want to get in on the fun, just go to HelloFresh.com slash PDOcast16 and use the promo code PDOcast16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash PDOcast16 and make sure you let them know we sent you by using the code PDOcast16 to redeem the offer they've currently got going on. Now let's get back to the show. All right, we're back. Um, all right, let's do the Leafs real quick then, just to kind of put a bow on, on this Atlantic division. Jack, um, what did you think about the moves to basically, I'm not even worried about the acquisition cost and the picks they moved, because obviously they, they seem to prioritize keeping their first and not trading any of their um, more highly regarded prospects, and they accomplished that with the trade they made. But they basically had kind of one shot here to improve their team based on the cap space they'd, they'd carved out for themselves. And they used it to get Mark Giordano and Colin Blackwell from from the Kraken. Um, how do you feel about that? And do you think that it was the right usage of those resources? And do you think that it kind of accomplished enough of an improvement for them moving forward? Yeah, I think they addressed the right thing. Uh, you know, a big issue for them this year has been the left side of that defense not looking quite as tidy as it did last year, especially Jake Muzzin. I think, you know, right now he's injured, but even before that, it, it seemed like he had lost a step. Uh, and, and, you know, that second pair being steady was a huge part of what made the Leafs an actually competent defensive team last year. Uh, and, and that had fallen apart. So I, I was on board with the idea that they weren't necessarily going to overpay for, you know, a top line left wing, which I think would have been, uh, a bit of a luxury with, with how they're playing right now uh, or whether they would go out and get like a, you know, big Josh Manson kind of guy for the right side. It really did seem to me like the left side was the weakness they needed to address. And, you know, Mark Giordano, he fits their style to a T uh, you know, last year, they obviously had fully know they love bringing in these ex captains who are veterans, but I think the way he plays actually does check a lot of boxes that they needed to fit. And, you know, the, the, the picks they gave up, I don't think they're really going to miss them that much. And they didn't even have to give up a future first to do it. And they had a player in Blackwell who I think just adds to their roster of solid bottom six players that you can't really complain about uh, who just kind of do their job for less than a million dollars. Yeah. I think they were smart to identify uh, trading for a defenseman as opposed to panicking and, and wildly overpaying for any goalie, because I'm not sure that would have given them what they were looking for at, at this point, especially over a 10 to 15, 20 game sample. I guess for, for me, the question here with, with their blue line is, okay, let's kind of map out and entering the postseason, everyone is healthy. And that includes Jake Muzzin, who it sounds like he will probably be cleared. Rasmus Sandin's out, out now, but I imagine he'll be back as well. So how are we constructing their defense pairs? Because I assume they're going to want to, or envisioned putting Giordano back with TJ Brody, they stylistically complement each other. We've seen them have success together. Then I guess that leaves you with Morgan Riley playing with Ilya Labushkin, which they've been doing recently. And then that third pair, I think they're going to be, they're going to feel obligated to play Muzzin with Hull because of sort of name brand value or kind of they've done that in the past. And that's been a complete mess every time they've gone to that pairing this season. And initially it was very easy to be like, all right, Justin Hole's not that good. But then we've seen him play very well with TJ Brody and with Rasmus Sandin and his partners. And realistically, it's probably more of a case of Jake Muzzin hasn't really looked right all year and physically might just not be the player he used to be. And so if they're feeling like they need to play those guys, I think that really hurts them in the sense that I think they really need Rasmus Sandin and Timothy Lilligren out there to help kind of transition the puck and create off the rush because this has become a team that's kind of quietly 
not that dangerous off the rush anymore. Like, I think we think of them as this kind of explosive, high-powered, run-and-gun team, and they still create a lot in the O-zone, but their ability to actually get the puck there quickly and attack off the rush hasn't been that elite this season. And in the postseason, if they really kind of grind to a halt and have struggled, struggled, struggled to break through offensively, I do worry about not having kind of that extra outlet to create. And so if they're not playing those young guys because they feel like they need to play Muzzin and Hole, I think they kind of work themselves into a bit of a problem. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And this is the thing that, you know, you, you see this every once in a while where it's like, well, we have this uh, guy who maybe he's breaking down a little bit or, or whatever you want to say, but we do pay him five and a half million dollars. And so we could never in a million years justify healthy scratching him or saying like, we're, you know, we're not going to put you in the lineup until we know you're back to 100% healthy. And like, I can also see a situation where, look, I, you know, as a guy who watched the ESPN uh, trade deadline show today, instead of TSN, um, we, we got a healthy dose of, you know, the Leafs just don't play the right way when they get into the playoffs. Like they got to get more buy-in from Austin Matthews. He's going to play hard down low and all this shit. And so like Jake Muzzin, I can see them. Oh, that's the jam and the leadership we need. And it's like, well, I mean, if he stinks, like, I don't care how leadershipy he is, you know, he can be leadershipy in the dressing room before the game and between periods and stuff. So I I, just, I don't I don't see a universe where the Leafs actually do that, but I I I, I think you are correct, Dimitri, in that they should, uh, you know, throttle back on Muzzin here. Yeah, I mean, and it's not out of the question that maybe he'll come back and he'll look a lot better after he's had a, a yeah. time to recover. Um, the the thing for me, and I guess this isn't a necessarily super satisfying answer, is that I think there's every chance that they wouldn't trust Sandine and Liljegren in the playoffs that much anyway. And they would end up overleaning on that top four and, you know, probably to their detriment. So it might be, you know, obviously Sandine and Liljegren have put up excellent numbers in those relatively small minutes, but if they're not really giving them a huge role right now, I can't imagine that that's going to change in a first round series against the Tampa Bay lightning. So if that is the case, then I guess better to have a player of Giordano's caliber that they can fall back on than have to rely, say, on a Jake Muslin who's not playing at 100%. Well, and I'll say, I think I wonder if part of the motivation for adding Giordano now, they're obviously focused on finally trying to get over the hump in the postseason and, and finally have some success this year. But I wonder if part of the motiva- motivation is getting him in to kind of help set up his next contract this summer. Like, I really wouldn't, something, I guess, thing, something to watch for this offseason is I wouldn't be surprised at all to see him kind of get converted to that Jason Spezza financial plan. Like, I I think he'll be able to get more money if he wants to elsewhere, certainly, but I wouldn't be surprised at all to see him take a bit of a, uh, a discount, stay with the Leafs. And then if he does, that really opens the door for them to get creative with Muzzin's contract where he carries this $5.625 million cap it for two more years. But after they pay his next signing bonus, the actual dollar figure on that is very low. And I know he has a no trade clause or whatever, but there's always ways to work around that. And I wouldn't be surprised to see them, assuming he doesn't come back and turn it around and look like the Jake Muzzin we we grew to know and love in the past, if they kind of explore basically trying to replace Muzzin fully 
with Giordano at a fraction of the cost and then using those savings elsewhere to improve the team. So that's, uh, that's something to watch for me. Um, all right, let's, let's, let's kind of keep it going here. Um, Ryan, give me a, uh, give me another team or player or story that caught your eye. You wrote all the trade grades for literally every single trade for us at EP ringside. So pretty much, uh, yeah. I think I might've missed an AHL trade or two in there. What's but. on, what's on the, uh, did you get that Anthony potato trade? I did. Yeah. All right. I good, sure did. Good. All right. Just for the sake of thoroughness. Couldn't, we need, couldn't we need miss that, that on a former uh, Northeastern Husky. Like Anthony certainly give me, um, give me a team. I loved what the Anaheim ducks did. We talked about them a little bit with, with Hampus Lindholm, obviously, but they did a thing that I always say teams that aren't in the playoffs and have a bunch of guys who are approaching UFA should do, which is trade all of them. Just get as many futures as you possibly can. And I'm looking at it now in the first two rounds of the next three drafts, they have uh, four first round picks and eight second round picks. That rules. That's so cool. Um, and, you know, like they they did Vegas a favor where uh, they took the Donovs uh, deal, but also uh, gave up John Moore, who obviously they had no interest in. Um, and the, I don't know if you saw the, the Donov thing, but the, the issue was that he – uh, his his no trade list was never submitted to the league in the first place, and so he effectively did not have one. Um, that was I mean, what the they, issue was. They, we need a thirty for thirty on this entire sequence of events with Adonov because this uh, this past off season they got rid of Mark Andre Fleury because they wanted to carve out cap space, right? Yes, they filled that entire cap space they created with Laurent Brassois who is a worse version of a goalie than Marc-Andre Fleury is even at this age and just absorbed Evgeny Dodonov's contract from yes, the Ottawa Senators. Yeah. They gave them a third round pick to do so. Mm-hmm. 50 games later of Evgeny Dodonov relatively underwhelming performance, they paid the Ducks a future second to take that contract yep. off their hands. And I believe they don't even have enough room now to actually activate Mark Stone. I think this is a... Uh, a move to potentially activate Alec Martinez here down the road before the well, regular season. It, it's a situation where they took back Kessler's contract, who actually makes more than Dodonov does. But he's on LTIR, right? But they can use that LTIR exactly. Yes. So yeah, like the, the I, you know, this is one of those things where I think they the, one of two things is is true with with Mark Stone either. They were just doing the thing where it's like, oh yeah, he's uh, not healthy, and then the day no, one he's the hurt. Players, I think he's hurt. No, that's what I mean. Or they're like, oh, sh- oh shit, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta get this guy back in the lineup, even at eighty five percent. Like Mark Stone helps us in a way that nobody else can. I, there, Vegas is fascinating for a bunch of reasons here, but um, yeah, I just, I just like that the Anaheim just did the thing that people like us always say they should do. They were like, yeah, we'll do that for sure. No problem. Well, Jack, they turned Manson, Lindholm, Raquel, Delorier, and one year of absorbing the Donovs contract to get a first this year, a second this year, uh, a second in 2023, two seconds in 2024, and a third in 2023. And I believe at EP Ringside, we had them already as 
the fourth uh, highest ranked prospect pool or something heading to the season. Now that it did include Trevor Zegers and Jamie Drysdale, who are obviously playing on their main roster, so they're not technically prospects, but they are a team that we've kind of traditionally over the past couple of years, at least, like what they've done with the draft. They've kind of taken high upside swings and, and went for skill and talented players, especially outside of the first round. And so if you're giving that scouting department uh, additional lottery tickets, basically, to to add to that, they don't have to make all those picks, obviously, they can trade them down the road and get ready-made players in the moment. But yeah, I completely agree with Ryan. Like I, they, they did a remarkable job of decisively and ruthlessly treating this like a business as opposed to letting motions get in the way and trying to retain some of these guys just because they've been, been ducks for the past seven years. Yeah. And, you know, they got some players back in return. You know, I mean, Dodonov, he, I think he's a, an on-ice shooting percentage victim this year. His underlying numbers are fine. Aston Reese is a UFA, you know, he'd be smart for them to keep around, but who knows if they will. Uh, Vakanainen may be a player. Hellison might be a player. Uh, and, you know, like you said, at first five second round picks, some extras as well. It, it, I mean, it does give you that tantalizing thought of what if they did this last year or what if they even did this the year before, you know, with, with you know, no playoff games since, you know, how much could they have cleaned up with Hampus Lindholm and Josh Manson and Ricard Raquel? But given what Pat Verbeek inherited, I think he did about as well as possible. And uh, yeah, set them up. And it's not just about, you know, being able to pick these prospects and, and put that scouting, that amateur scouting team to work. But, you know, this is a team that wants to be competitive. I'm I'm pretty sure as soon as possible with, with Zegris and Drysdale and, and John Gibson, as long as he's still there. And that is a lot of assets that can get you pretty far uh, in terms of actually, you know, trading them in the summer for some proper NHL talent. So, yeah, a- excellent work by by Anaheim for sure. Well, they don't have a lot of uh, financial commitments kind of weighing them down, especially beyond like two years out right now. So, like, they inheriting a pretty clean slate financially. I guess not the elephant in the room, but the big question for me is whether they really get creative this summer, potentially exploring a John Gibson trade. Like, I guess that would kind of fly in the face of the idea of, all right, well, we have Zegris and Terry right now who are still pretty cheap and we want to be pretty good. And so having kind of a, a prolific goalie would, would certainly help expedite that as opposed to if we trade him, we don't know what we're going to have at the position. But this is the third straight year where he's been kind of hovering around 900 save percentage. And I've been a Gibson defender because when I watch him, I think athletically he still looks like he's at his prime. And I... I don't know. He's not old by any means. So like, it's very easy to be like, all right, the environment in front of him sucks. And that's why he hasn't been as good, but he has a negative goal save above expected. And Anthony Stolarz apparently has not had those same problems because in his 20 or so games, he's been perfectly fine this year. And he has five more years at 6.4 per, which is very sort of palatable for any team that would require him. He turns 29 this summer. And I do still believe that his reputation around the league is enough where you wouldn't be like shedding a contract by any means. It would be like, all right, we're going to pay a premium to get one of the best five goalies in the world or, or however we view them into our lineup and kind of address a big need for us. So I don't know, especially with how Lucas Dostal has looked in the AHL, um, maybe they'd be smart to bring him up for the rest of this season and kind of see how he acquits himself against NHL talent and see if he could be their goalie moving forward. But I'd be pretty interested in the idea of at least entertaining what I could get for him just because it feels like there's you could still get quite a bit, especially based on the fact that his performance hasn't been that good. Yeah, uh, I've, I've always heard with him from Ducks fans that he always starts out pretty strong and then around January, he starts to really fall apart. 
So, you know, maybe the right move would in fact be if, if, you know, they decide that they do want to at least kind of give things a go next year and see if maybe the young core is ready to do what the LA Kings are doing this year. You know, maybe they run into next season with him and, and if things aren't going super well, but his numbers are okay, then maybe they could explore a trade in season next year. Because I think it's it's kind of 50-50 to me whether or not it makes sense for him to really be a part of this core moving forward or if it is just time to reset. Um, all right. What was the most ridiculous trade? The Travis Hamannick one or the Jeremy Lozon one with the common denominator that it really feels like NHL DMs still do not truly understand how to evaluate defensemen. It's got to be the Hamannick one. Yeah. I just, he's not good. And yet they're apparently bringing him in with an eye toward like, oh, he should play with, with Jake Sanderson. What? What? I've, I've heard so many Vancouver fans saying, oh, you know, Hughes would be so good if he wasn't playing with Travis Hamannick. So it'll be great to hear that about Jake Sanderson for the next five years. People genuinely dislike Travis, uh, Travis Hamannick. Um, it does seem that way. Did you see the, uh, the Mark Mathot uh, tweet <laughs> about him? I did, yeah. 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 Well, so. I'll just say that's not coming from nowhere. Um, yeah, I guess with the lows on one, it's wild because – a second round pick for a player with his profile is, is staggering. I guess you can make the argument that like, all right, well, David Poyle is 72 years old. The Nashville Predators are a playoff team. And I guess they feel like, all right, we bring this guy in. Ben Harper doesn't have to play for us, which sure. Uh, none of those things are true for the Senators, right? Like right. Ham- Hamannick passed through waivers at the start of this season, is 31 years old actually makes more money next year than his cap hit. So it's not that, even a situation that, where the senators are being cheap. Like they're going to be, that blew my money. mind. That was the thing I know. Cause I was like, well, surely he, he must be making like $2 million next year or something. No, he makes like an extra 250 grand or something like that over what his cap hit is. I genuinely, when I, when I saw the news, I had to text some people just to make sure that the reporting wasn't wrong. Cause I thought that the Canucks would have to give away a, a third round pick to clear that cap space because they were like really t- intent on uh, decreasing their financial liability moving forward. And so I was like, right, well, no one's going to take Hamannick. So yeah, third round pick. All right. Like that makes sense get him off the books for next year. And no, it was the senators paying for the right to have Travis Hamannick next season. I, yeah. And how about this? I, I, I forgot about this until I just pulled it up on cap friendly. They owe him 1.25 million as a signing bonus. Oh, yeah. So, like, even if they want to bail out at some point, they've already paid him 1.25 million. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like the the three things piled up. It's the fact that he passed through waivers and they could have had him for free. It's yes. that earlier that day, Philippe Myers passed through waivers, who is an equally crummy defenseman, but at least is young and has some potential upside. Uh, and then literally like what, 15 minutes later, Travis Dermott gets traded for like an identical third round pick uh, who is also younger and, and has some upside. So yeah, it, it's just, it was, it was head scratching. Clearly they must just really love the player. I don't know if like the only like DVD they have of his games is from 2015 or something, but. Uh, oh, well, yeah, that's literally it. Jack Apuano vouch for him. Right, right. So yeah, that's a uh, good times. Um, all right. I feel like we should talk about the Wild a bit because they obviously acquired Marc-Andre Fleury today and then they, in a kind of corresponding move, moved Capo Kakinen for Jacob Middleton. Um, 
Jack, you were high, or I guess like you drew the link between those two in, in that aforementioned podcast where we preview trades we'd like to see. Um, so beyond just, you know, feeling like you should pat yourself on the back for being right. Um, what do you like about this fit? And do you think it kind of makes sense from a risk reward perspective for the wild? Yeah, I think it does for sure. I, it really was the only fit that made sense for me with Flurry because, you know, Edmonton, Toronto, those teams, like I just couldn't envision Flurry wanting to go there. And it really seemed like Chicago was going to do right by him. And the thing about Minnesota is that, you know, if we were to go up and down and list our list of teams that we think can win a Stanley Cup this year, I don't think any of us would really have Minnesota super high up that list which means that, but they're still a playoff team, which means that they're not going to sell or rebuild or anything like that. So I've, you know, you look at their biggest weakness so far, which I think is, is probably goaltending, especially down the stretch here. I, I really think that kind of a boom bust type of move, like bringing in a guy like Marc-Andre Fleury makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, it's a second round pick. It's only going to be a first if they make the conference finals, which I think would be considered a pretty successful playoff run by any standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, everyone who's played with Fleury always talks about how much they loved him and how much he brought the room together and how much the goalies learned from him and all that stuff. So, yeah, honestly, it's a kind of similar situation to Giroux where, you know, the asset maybe was, was you know, somewhat substantial, but it, it really seemed like, you know, it was just kind of the one fit that made sense. And, and I don't think they're really realistically going to regret it. Yeah, right. I'd say, you know, if you look at their realistic playoff roadmap, in round one, they're probably going to pay, depending on where they finish, one of Colorado, St. Louis, or Calgary. And those are three of the top six scoring teams. And they're going to be, I guess, well, we'll see what would happen in the St. Louis series, but definitely against Colorado or, or, or Calgary, if they fell into either of those matchups, they would be considered a pretty heavy underdog. And yes. for all of Fleury's flaws, like his ceiling performance that we've seen is still very high, especially on a, on a single game basis. And you could stretch that out, I'd say, for a playoff series as well. If he gets hot and really just starts doing Mark Andre Fleury things, flying around and yeah, he's done a score, right? Forty-seven shots in a row or whatever, and just mystifying opposing shooters. And I think it is within his range of outcomes to potentially, out of nowhere, steal a playoff series. Whereas at this point, I don't think that's true for either Cam Talbot or, or Kapokakinen, or as much like you know any goalie, I guess, could. But it seems like it is more attainable of an outcome for Fleury. Not to mention that. I think stylistically, like I was thinking a lot about this. I, I thought he didn't make any sense for Edmonton. I thought he made sense for Minnesota because like, what's Mark, Mark Andre Fleury's strengths and weaknesses? He's insanely aggressive. And he basically just like sprints out and tries to cut off the angle and greet every single shooter as soon as they have the puck. And what happened in Chicago this year was they stink in the defensive zone in terms of their coverage. I know their expected goals rates haven't been that bad under Derek King, but there's a lot of blown assignments and not boxing people out and stuff. And so he kind of goes for that shooter. And then that shooter, instead of firing it into his pads, basically does a cross ice pass or shoots for a rebound. And the other team gets a very easy cap in because Marc-Andre Fleury, similar to what we've seen from like Jonathan Quick at his prime, is wildly out of position. And Minnesota is a pretty well-structured defensive team in terms of kind of limiting those sorts of things. So if there's a team to kind of provide support for him, I actually think Minnesota makes quite a bit of sense in that regard. So, yeah, I think it's a very logical fit, especially considering how bad Cam Talbot's been this season. Yeah, and that's the big thing, right, is because the Wild, you know, I think – they set a, a record on uh, the various broadcasts today. Of uh, they're facing cap hell next year. I don't know yeah. if you guys have heard about this. 
Um, and like their team's pretty good with the exception of uh, their goaltending isn't very good. So this is the only chance they're really going to have to like fully stretch their legs and, and I like I th- I think the stuff about cap hell is a, a little overblown, quite frankly. I think it's underblown. They have, it, it's fifteen percent of their cap next season. I under no, that's I, a lot. I'm not I, okay. I won't get into it, but like I I looked at it and I was like it it certainly is not as bad as fifteen percent of their cap has been nuked for next year. Makes it sound. Let's yeah. put it that way. Well, it helps Boldy's on an ELC. I assume Rossi's going to contribute for them. Yeah, that, that was that was yeah. part of it. And also, yeah, I mean, like they just have a lot of guys signed for next year right. or, or under reasonable control. Um, but anyway, point is, like, yeah, now's the time to empty the tanks. And then, you know, you you, you kind of find out what, what you can find out with with this team. And, and like you say, um, Flurry's style, I think – the one thing you would say about the wild is they're, they're not a team that blows a lot of assignments. Right. So like they're, they're going to have it, they're going to have it relatively easier for him than say Chicago. Um, so he can, he can maybe round back into form and, and like Jack said, the price really isn't like totally outrageous. So Jack, um, I want to cover the Rangers and the abs here before we get out of here. Um, do you feel like the abs did enough? Yeah, I'd say so. It's, I mean, the Avs are a great team. The Avs were a great team yep. last year. Uh, you know, they had a couple things that I think that they wanted to address. You know, like I said, I think that they were already things that they had in their lineup, but I think they just got better versions of them. Uh, you know, Arturi Lekanen, you know, earlier today I called him the Finnish Valeri Nichushkin. You know, I, I think that that's a great acquisition. I don't think they paid too much. You know, Barron was, I think, by our website's ranking their ninth-ranked prospect. Right. That second-round pick, I don't think they're going to miss it too much. And they have team control for Lekkonen. Uh Nico Sturm, I think, is another analytical darling player. Huge surprise. Andrew Cogliano has a strong track record. If he hasn't lost a step, I, I guess we'll find out. But I don't think, again, he's going to kill them. And, you know, Josh Manson, I guess... You know, obviously the stats aren't insanely high on on him, but I, I don't think anyone is going to deny that he's he's absolutely an upgrade on Jack Johnson or Curtis McDermott. And maybe even there's some kind of upside where in that Colorado system he can settle in nicely and, and you know, come back, you know, like we hope with Lindholm to a little bit more of his contending Ducks form because he's he's not super, super old. So I'm kind of... You know, obviously would like to see them get a big player like Giroux, but I think that they did certainly enough to remain very, very high on that list of cup contenders. And I mean, maybe even at the top, depending on how you feel about them relative to Florida. Yeah, Ryan, um, obviously, yeah, uh, Lekkonen was a great acquisition for them, especially like he's kind of nice. Nachushkin insurance moving forward because I believe Nachushkin is a UFA this summer. And so if he that decides right. to, if he prices himself out and, and gets a payday from someone else, they still retain Lekkonen's RFA rights and it seems like a very logical kind of, all right, we're just going to plug this guy into basically that role and and just have him uh, moving forward. So I'm all for that. And I love the player. The reason why I framed it through the lens of, did they do enough was because, you know, obviously Josh Manson was the first move they made and they felt like they needed to add a defenseman. And I guess they have a lot riding on the health of Bowen Byram the rest of the mm-hmm. way, in my opinion. Because even with Josh Manson, unless you feel like he's gonna, you're gonna be able to pair Sam Gerrard with him when he comes back, when he because he's injured right now, 
and I guess maybe, yeah, he, he, he could because we've seen Josh Manson have success with like Cam Fowler, for example, in the past. I'm worried about that because Sam Gerrard this year has uncharacteristically very, very much so struggled. And I think they desperately need to throw him a bit of a life raft in terms of a defensive partner, because he's basically been just kind of drowning all year with, you know, the, the two Johnsons or Ryan Murray, like he just, his defense pairing has not been good enough. And so they haven't put him in a position to succeed. And the reason why that's important is because beyond that top pairing, if you're not going to get a very good performance out of Sam Gerrard and if Bowen Byram is going to be unhealthy or unable to play in the playoffs, you have a lot of guys who like aren't necessarily very good at what Colorado needs to do to be successful, which is transition hyper-efficiently and get the puck up as fast as possible so that their forwards can attack downhill. And if you have Eric Johnson just kind of slamming the puck off the boards and Jack Johnson throwing kind of passes in the middle of the ice to no one in particular – that kind of defeats the purpose of the way this team has been constructed. I know that now you add Lekkonen, it gives you kind of guys that can win puck battles and retrieve the puck more efficiently. But I still worry, as weird as it is to say, because this is a team that we praise their blue line construction so much, there are some questions there that kind of concern me in terms of like when you're nitpicking Stanley Cup contenders. Yeah, when when you look at the list of defensemen they have under contract, you're like, what is this, an all-star team? Exactly, yeah. Right? But then, like you say, like in actual practice, it's a it's a little flimsier. Like, I guess what you might say is that first pair is so good that it makes you worry less about the other pairs. But, of course, you know, those other pairs are still on the ice for whatever, like more than, a, yeah, like 40% of a game, like, you know, at five on five, like at the absolute minimum. So... I don't know. It's a, uh, or I 60%, I should say. Um, It's a, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough situation for them. I I wasn't sure that Josh Manson was the guy that I would have been personally excited to, to go out and acquire, but uh, you know, they didn't pay a ton for him as you say. And um, yeah, like I, I think that if you're adding insurance for, for guys like, you know, should they have been like, I didn't really think they needed Drew. Let me put it that way. Well, I mean, just similar with Florida, they don't need him, but he would certainly help. Of course. Yeah, of um, course. But like yeah. if, if you're getting into a bidding war over Claude Giroux, you go, well, we're in Florida, why don't you just take him? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, you know, I, I, I like the, the Lekkonen bet quite a bit for, for that reason, but you know, they're, they're the average. Jack, do you, do you, do you get what I mean though? In the sense that like, this is like when we've seen this team kind of struggle, like Vegas did a really good job of kind of turning the neutral zone into a bit of a no fly zone for them, where they really did a good job of slowing down their speed and then countering and the way they're built. I just feel like for them to be at their best, like when we're watching those games where they just have these blow up performances, where they're out shooting teams 50 to 18 and scoring five goals within a 12 minute stretch, it usually comes in these like sequences where they're just able to just consistently like get the puck from point A to point B so efficiently. And yeah, having Devon Taves and Kale McCarr certainly helps. And in the playoffs, we might even see their usage bump up closer to 30 minutes than it is right now. But at the same time, they need the rest of those minutes. Like I know they kind of want to be more versatile and diverse in terms of the players they have and be able to play kind of traditional tougher playoff hockey with their defensemen. But I do worry a little bit, like, I guess that, listen, like 
a lot of teams, if you take out Sam Gerard and Bowen Byron from their depth chart, you're going to have questions about their blue line. So maybe this is kind of nitpicking to the extreme, but I guess they've been so good and kind of so deep that when you're trying to kind of try to find a fine ointment, this is what I find with them. Well, I mean, Colorado falls into the same category, I think, as Toronto and Florida, where I think that they looked at the way that they played in the playoffs and decided that they wanted to make a bit of a stylistic change. Like you alluded to, Toronto is leaning a lot more heavy on dumping Jason Forecheck. Florida goes out and spends a first-round pick for Ben Sherratt. And I think Colorado looks at what happened with Vegas last year and, and found that their game was able to get shut down and that once they were getting hemmed in their own zone, you know, especially that Gerard uh, Nemeth pairing last year, it just got eaten alive. You know, I think Gerard's skills as a defenseman are so geared towards transi- transition play and, you know, rush defense and then, you know, kind of making sure that people don't come into the zone that he got exposed quite a bit, I think, in last year's playoffs in terms of his, his in-zone defense. And, and obviously part of that was, was due to Nemeth. But, you know, I do kind of think... You, you talked about Gerard's struggles. I, I think that a lot of that is just pure Jack Johnson-itis. You know, there really is a kind of thing that we've seen in the past. It happened to Chris Letang a couple of years ago where, you know, Jack Johnson, when he's playing with a skilled defenseman, will just do so specifically horribly with them. Like, I think their expected goals rate is like sub 40% together. And then Jack Johnson does better away from them. So all their metrics go completely right. uh, awry. Um you know, I think you put him with a guy in Josh Manson who at least theoretically is supposed to be a strong in-zone defender and net front presence and, and all that kind of stuff, that maybe that will give Gerard a bit more leeway to, to do what he does best instead of maybe having to cover for a guy like Johnson or, you know, you know, just be a complete mess out there. So I, I think it I think it makes sense and I think it does address issues that they had last year against Vegas in terms of, you know, if we can't do the transition fun against Vegas or a team that is going to play like Vegas, because obviously it is uh, not certain for sure that Vegas is going to be in the playoffs in the first place. You know, I think this does give them options to diversify. And even if it doesn't, at least it's better than what they would have done or what they would have had out there if they had just done nothing. Um, All right. We got like two minutes left here. Ryan, you were, so you were writing the the trade grades. It felt like after Lekkonen went off the board to the Avalanche, I was a bit worried that the Rangers were going to come out of this empty-handed except for Justin Braun for a third. And then pretty much simultaneously, like right before the deadline, they landed Andrew Kopp and Tyler Mott. Um, what, do we, what do we think about those acquisitions? Because it certainly seems like, at the very least, they improved their depth and kind of limited the number of just like, oh no, these minutes are going to go disastrously for us when right. they don't have their best players on the ice. Yeah, I, I I wrote in the trade grades. I'm not like, I know a lot of people like Andrew Cobb. I'm a little less high on him than others, I think. Um, but, you know, what he does well is is kind of, he, he he's a guy who carries the puck uh, into the attacking zone. He's a guy who plays a little on the rush and the Rangers uh, don't, do a ton of that, uh, especially when that when that top line is off the ice. So, um, you know, he he gives them that extra that extra little uh, I don't know, like like we said earlier, I guess downhill play. Yeah, a, a dynamic. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and so, you know, is he the best in the world at that kind of stuff? No, but do they need someone to be the? They just need someone to do it. They don't need someone to be the best at it. So. 
I, you know, they gave up a, a fair amount to acquire him. I, I was a little surprised that he got two second round picks, a fifth, and I wanted to say Justin Barron, but I think it was Morgan. Morgan Justin Barron, was yeah. a Rangers guy, yeah. right? Um, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. So it, it's. I, whatever Tyler Mott's whatever I, you know I I know he was a big well, when you're comparing the, when you're comparing the minutes that he's going to be replacing like he, I think he is a fair number, a fair bit of an upgrade yeah sure no and I mean this is why the Canucks were so desperate to keep him uh, right up yeah. until they realized they weren't going to make the playoffs well, he was so good in that bubble playoffs like, he was like <laughs> he was like one of the best offensive players in the world on the penalty kill yeah so anyway yeah I, I think. Um, like, I don't love what the Rangers did, but like they addressed a lot of their needs in a, in a real way. Um, I, I, I guess what I would say is like, you know, we've been hearing, Oh, they're a little ahead of schedule and I'm kind of sitting here going, hmm, not really. So, yeah, I mean, their, their bottom six and their bottom pair this season for the most part have basically looked like the list of players that get waived on the last day of the preseason. Right. So the fact that they get, you know, a proper good defensive defenseman in Justin Braun and, you know, a good, I, I think, versatile player in Cop who really can play either the high-flying rush offensive player role or the bottom six board checking player role, depending on what's asked of them. And then Tyler Mott, who, again, he's better than Kevin Rooney or Dryden Hunt or whoever AHL or they were going to play on the fourth line anyway. So, uh, you know, I think they really did what they needed to do and they didn't go absolutely crazy spending all their assets on a guy who didn't really address anything they needed to. Yep. I like that. All right. Um, Jack, I'll let you go first. Plug some stuff. What, uh, where can people check you out and uh, what have you been doing around the trade deadline? And then Ryan, you go after that. Uh, well, if they want to read about 250 uh, tweets, they can go back and look at what I posted today uh, following every single trade. Uh, there probably a lot of typos in there. I would have to imagine uh, that's on Twitter at jfreshhockey. They can read my writing at EP Rinkside. That's right, they can. Uh, they mm-hmm. sure can, uh, including a full 32-team rundown, uh, which should be up tomorrow. Uh, and then they can subscribe to my Patreon to get my visualizations of stats. Uh, Patreon.com slash jfreshhockey. Ryan, what about uh, you? Yeah, so as we mentioned earlier, I wrote uh, the trade grades for every trade Pretty much every trade, I guess. Not uh, not every every trade, but almost all of them between um, the Toffoli deal and you know the end of the the end of the deadline today. Yeah. And uh, total amount of words I checked uh, just now seventy six hundred fifty one. So that's a lot. That's a lot. That was it. Was a long day for me. Um, but uh, you know, I also will soon have uh, a a. NCAA hockey tournament preview. The tournament starts on Thursday. On Wednesday, I will publish one that probably runs around 4,500 words. So even check, more, a lot writing. Um, check that out. Yeah. It, basically, every team is represented in the tournament this year with at least one prospect. So your favorite team will have a guy you can root for. So check it out. All right. Well, this is a blast. It's good hockey. Guys, get some rest. Take care of yourselves. And, uh, and we'll have you back on Sunday down the road. All right, have a good one, but thanks for inviting us on. Sounds good. The Hockey Pediocast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at SoundCloud.com.
facebook.com slash hockey pdocast.